This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. On Media Watch this week, the government recently announced the biggest public investment in media for years. But is even more of your money going to be paying for news and journalism in the future than recent reports would have had you believe? And while we're at it, how will the government's broadcasting funding agency New Zealand On Air deal with all this new funding, which we'll start to spend pretty soon? We'll also hear how the news media aired the opinions of a wide range of property owners after the government's big housing announcement this week, but the concerns of those who have no houses were harder to find in the coverage. And how did this trashy tale of Kiwi deportees end up on Aussie TV recently? Only Nine News is on board this secret one-way flight, booting Kiwi criminals back to New Zealand. But before all that, we look at the clamour to cancel Police 107 over claims that it's racist. Calls are mounting for TVNZ to scrap the reality show Police 107 over accusations of racist stereotyping. Auckland councillor FSO Collins says it depicts young brown people as brutish. That was how RNZ's midday news kicked off last Monday, with news that would have surprised many listeners. One of the most enduring and most popular local TV shows was facing calls to cancel it because of racist stereotyping. So how did that come about? Well, like many other controversies these days, it came to the attention of the media and to the top of the news agenda via social media. Last Sunday morning, Auckland City Councillor FSO Collins tweeted that he'd been watching TV and he didn't like what he saw on TVNZ. And on Monday, he told Radio Watea it wasn't the show itself that prompted him to take to Twitter, just an ad for it. TVNZ did a cutaway shot, so they were promoing uh, Police 107, and their cutaway shot was a still picture of some brown young people. And my guess is they're Māori and Pacific, and there were a few of them in that cutaway shot. And it got me really riled up again. I don't watch that rubbish in the first place. But what why it got me so angry, Dale, is because the subtle messages that it's feeding to those people who are watching the show is that if you're brown and young, you are brutal thuggish and a criminal. And I'm tired of those messages. Councillor Collins went on to tell Watea's Dale husband that Police 107 was not only rubbish, but also chewing gum TV. But it had no taste and no flavour, he said, and it was now time for TVNZ to spit it out. After that, broadcaster, academic and critic Ella Henry told Dale Husband Police 107 was hate speech, which should be scrapped immediately. And after that... The next guest was the Minister for Culture and Heritage, Kitty Allen, though Dale Husband didn't ask for her thoughts on Police 107. Yet was this fleeting scene in a trailer really enough to condemn a show that's had 28 successful series on TVNZ and which, according to police, has helped them make hundreds of arrests down the years and solve some pretty serious crimes? The following morning on News Talk ZB's early edition show, Councillor Collins also told Kate Hawkesby he didn't watch Police 107, but he was sure that it stereotyped Māori and Pacifica people. So the impression is we're feeding this frenzy of these are brutes and thugs and this is what you're going to be entertained with and that's why I think this show's done its time. But is the show not just representing the reality or are you saying it's being edited in a way to look racist? I think it's uh, both of those things. Councillor Collins went on to cite the objections of Trevor Bradley, a senior lecturer at Victoria University of Wellington's Institute of Criminology. Now, his views on Police 107 were in the news last June after the American police show Cops, which revelled in real-life footage of aggressive policing, was cancelled after 32 seasons amid building anger about racist and violent policing in the US. 
Trevor Bradley told Stuff that a student's thesis from 2012 had analysed one series of Police 107 here and concluded that the ride-along section of the show really did zero in on Māori and Pacifica people. In Canterbury University, criminologist Greg Newbold, who's since retired, told Stuff that having been on ride-alongs with the police himself, he thought the show didn't accurately depict what a policing shift was really like, mostly boring and routine stuff. Now, back then, TVNZ and Police 107's producers insisted the programme merely films the calls as they come into police without judgment about race, and the show was an accurate snapshot of how Kiwis interact with police, and they launched a spirited defence of the show with a joint statement. As it's observational, this programme doesn't cast judgment on arrest rates or prison statistics, but if it causes viewers to think about this issue more closely, that wouldn't be disappointing for those involved. So in other words, anything that sparks debate has got to be a good thing. And back then, that seemed to be the end of the story. Another series of Police 107 passed by without any more headlines until now. Last Monday, News Talk ZB and The Herald had headlines saying that debate was raging about the show after FSO Collins had put it back on the agenda. And it was pushed on by interviews like this one with Race Relations Commissioner Ming Foon on the Mike Hosking Breakfast. Do you think Police 107's racist or not? Gen 7, uh, unfortunately, does target more brown people than uh, white people, so therefore it is racist. But unlike FSO Collins, Ming Foon didn't want 10-7 pulled off the air. He wanted it ethnically evened up. Well, they can target who they're filming, actually, Mike. Yeah. They can actually quotarise the, uh, the filming. So you would argue what we'll do is we'll have, OK, we've just edited up three brown people being or doing whatever for the programme, so we now need to find three white people. Is that how that would go? Why not? Later in the morning, the former and original host of the show, former cop Graham Bell, appeared on News Talk ZB, after which he was elevated to the status of TV icon on the Herald's website. And he said that any criminals starring on his old show had selected themselves. If you can't do the crime you can't do the screen time on the show. Racism is a very easy label to apply, and it's often applied erroneously or mischievously. And it's, it's um, you know, when, when people start applying it mischievously to try and perhaps excuse uh, bad behaviour by a group of people, it becomes a real problem. But that isn't what Councillor FSO Collins had done, and neither was he doing what Graham Bell suggested next. I mean... Does he want the police to ignore crime if it's committed by brown people? Possibly so. What, well, does he? I mean, I'm beginning to think that there are people that do want that. Far from ignoring local crime, Councillor Collins had already told News Talk ZB he was addressing it personally in the region he represents. I'm on the ground in Ōtara, Papatoetoe, Ōtahuhu, and we're working alongside community agencies, youth workers and community workers to assist the police in any kind of work that they want done. So I think it is, it's time for us to move on from this. So Councillor Collins and the show's supporters clearly have very different ideas of what Police 107 is for. Back in 2014, the producer Philly DeLacy, who's now the CEO at the maker Screen Time, said the ethos was a warts-and-all point of view, demystifying the role of the police, as well as harvesting those tip-offs for unsolved crimes. And she said one of the greatest tributes to the programme was the number of police officers they worked with who told them that Police 107 was the reason they joined the force. So if so, what the show portrays is pretty significant. 
But Councillor Collins also told Radio Waitea on Monday it was more than just Police 107 that needed to change. He wanted Māori and Pacifica people represented in better ways right across the network. TVNZ needs to look at its charter, acknowledge that it has a duty to to educate all of New Zealanders about all of our cultures, not just highlight the negative stuff that's happening amongst certain people. Councillor Collins was behind the times there. TVNZ's charter was repealed fully 10 years ago. The Crown-owned broadcaster's main mandate these days is really commercial, though it does still run Māori and Pacifica news and cultural programmes in the weekends off-peak. And ironically, the last major controversy about Police 107 was when TVNZ's chief executive Rick Ellis named it in 2007 as a programme which made Māori visible in prime time. Clearly, he wasn't conscious that it was not usually in a good way. And while FSO Collins said he didn't watch the show, he knew exactly who makes Police 107. I think it's important that people understand that this is a French-owned production company that's based in Australia. They have absolutely no stake in New Zealand. They're not interested in how we're developing or evolving as a nation. And so they don't care. Their only interest is in how they're going to get high ratings. Screen Time is indeed a local company, which is now a small part of the world's largest independent production company, Banerjee, which is headquartered in France. But Screen Time would balk at Efeso Collins' claim they have no interest in or stake in New Zealand life. The programme makes the show Marae DIY, among others, and it also has a unique commercial partnership with Māori Television to create campaigns for a Māori audience. Screen Time says it works with some of the best fluent te reo speakers and cultural advisors to tell positive stories. For example, student success with Te Kura, formerly the Correspondence School. Hi Anne. One of the best things about online learning is that you never have someone telling you that you're not anything. You always have people encouraging you and you always have someone by your side. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Alain has suffered quite a bit of bullying at schools. And this week, the Police 107 producer, who's now also the CEO of Screen Time, Philly De Lacey, strongly denied the show is racist or anything like the now defunct series Cops in the US. Interviewed by RNZ, she argued that Police 107 was an important show for all New Zealanders, which actually documented the evolution of the police force over the past 20 years. I feel enormously proud of it, and the team who produced Police 107 work incredibly hard to ensure that um, the content is accurate, that the content is culturally correct, um, that you know, when, we, when we've recorded interviews with people who are speaking foreign languages, we get people in to translate them for us to make sure that the cultural understanding is appropriate. And it's not just a stereotype. And as if to illustrate that, the straight-talking old-school cop Graham Bell's role was taken over in 2015 by Detective Rob Lemoto. He's of Tongan origin, he grew up in Manurewa and rose through the police ranks, taking up roles including that of Iwi Liaison Officer. Screen Time's Philly DeLacy also told RNZ she was actually offended by claims that her show was edited to highlight any particular racial group. Things don't end up on the cutting room floor because um, that's the that's just ludicrous. I, I don't. I don't even. I don't even actually understand that. That's not the the function of the program, is to represent situations that the police are dealing with in New Zealand on a day to day basis and how they deal with the community. And then the other function of the program is to try and assist the police with crime solving and to help educate the community on the processes that the police go through in dealing with the community and solving crime. 
But while that made Police 107 sound like some sort of documentary or current affairs, it's really nothing of the kind. For the spin-off this week, former police detective Tim McKinnell said that the current contract the police and screen time have makes it pretty clear the deal is exclusive access on the condition that the Police 107 producers do what they're told by the police. The police preview the content before it airs, and they order edits for reasons of security, sensitivity and privacy, among other things, including this. Matters which may affect the integrity or legal liability of the police or bring the police into disrepute. And that means that if Police 107 crews really did capture any overt racism on their cameras, well, it's pretty certain that viewers would never see it. And the same applies to other TVNZ-made shows designed to play a part in changing police culture. After Dame Margaret Baisley's damning 2007 report on the culture within the police ranks, TVNZ produced a series called Women in Blue as part of a gender-focused recruitment drive to rebalance the New Zealand police. And one of the subjects of Women in Blue, Constable Bridget Suckling, told RNZ at the time there was no danger of looking bad. I mean, there's always a certain amount of risk with media because you wonder, oh, what's their angle? What are they looking for? Even though you've got these cameras coming along with you and you think, oh, taking a risk here, all in New Zealand, seeing what I'm doing, you actually get to view those episodes beforehand. So you can um, make sure those messages or those stories are told in the way that you want them to be told. And it's the same deal or similar with shows like Motorway Cops, which is also on TVNZ every Thursday, Border Patrol and many others. The access is on the condition of cooperation. Though, judging by the viewing figures, that doesn't trouble the audience very much. Now, in the end, this week's controversy over Police 107 was all over in the media within 24 hours, so it remains to be seen if TVNZ or the police actually want to do anything about it. But while the police and TVNZ jointly defended the show from criticism in June last year, this time TVNZ would only say it was listening to feedback. And a police spokesperson told media this week the contract with Screen Time was due for renewal at the end of the year and police would then assess how or whether to continue that relationship. And the police also said, We are looking to explore opportunities to highlight the many other areas of work police is involved with, such as community engagement and harm prevention. Police 107 is likely to be back for Series 29 in 2022, in spite of all the objections voiced this week, under a new contract between themselves and the makers. And it's a fair bet that police powers of approval, vetting and veto will be reinforced in any new deal and used by the police to make sure the viewers only see what they want them to see. When MediaWatch returned for 2021, back in late January, the media were choked with stories about the red-hot housing market. And Hayden Donnell took a look at those and found that much of the coverage was pitched at those who have houses, but not the have-nots. Well, this week, the government unveiled a new policy to tackle the housing crisis and penalise those making big profits from property. And the stories about that surged to the top of the agenda again. So were those without their own homes accommodated any better in the coverage this time round? Hayden Donnell's been back on the case. Some of the changes on the investor side does or or hopefully means that house price growth will slow. Currently running at 21.5%, I mean that's huge, that's a lot of extra money. You and I, John, would have been better to be made out of weatherboard than uh, skin and bones in the last year in terms of earning potential, and that's, that's pretty cooked. That's economist Brad Olson delivering a highly technical economic assessment to breakfast John Campbell and his analysis of this week's big housing announcement from the government. 
Olsen was one of a squadron of economists blitzing the media's airwaves and column inches following the housing package reveal. Independent economist Cameron Bagri, ANZ chief economist Sharon Zollner, Kiwi Bank chief economist Jared Kerr, ASB chief economist Nick Tuffley and Westpac chief economist Satish Ranchod were all given extensive room to deliver their views across every major media platform in the country. But one group was given even more room to hold forth than economists. Landlords. Property Investors Federation President Andrew King and his colleague Federation Chief Executive Sharon Culwick were all but omnipresent following the announcement, with appearances in Stuff and The Herald and in multiple shows across the TV networks. Here's Andrew King on NewsHub. It is not a tax, tax loophole, uh, for a start. That is just rubbish. Uh, we, 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 yeah, To call us tax avoiders and speculators is wrong. The dominance of the Investor Economist Alliance was evident in the Herald's three lead headlines in the hours following the announcement. They read like this. Speculators horrified by crazy tax changes. Bizarre. Crazy. Landlords shocked at government's housing plans. Chilling effect. Housing policy could hit wider economy. Property investors even managed to share their reactions by proxy through the medium of our prominent broadcasters. Here's Duncan Garner passing on a potentially impotent threat from an investor acquaintance. People, a friend of mine who, who, who I know pretty well, actually, he's come to me overnight and said he's got 40 properties in Auckland. 40, OK? Wow. Yep. He's done really well. And he's going to put the price of every rental in Auckland up by $135 a week. Every rental he owns up by 135 a week from next year as a result of this. News Hub at 6 carried a story headlined, Renters could be worse off following government's new housing package, hyphen, property investors. It quoted three sources, Andrew King a property developer, and Tony Alexander, an economist who once advised young people to hire as many feng shui consultants, window washers, dog walkers, dog washers and cat whisperers as boomers did if they wanted to own a home. Renters were not consulted. These were all legitimate voices to add to the discussion. Property investors in particular will be affected by a new rule barring them from claiming mortgage interests on their extra houses as a tax-deductible expense. It did raise questions, though, of whether there might be a few other people with thoughts about one of the biggest issues facing the country. First home buyers, the group the government's entire package was ostensibly supposed to help, got a little bit of attention, notably in an online story from News Hub's Hannah Cronast. First home buyers club spokeswoman Leslie Harris also appeared in a panel on the AM show alongside King. But one of the most vulnerable groups affected by the changes, renters, were more seldom heard. When they did appear, it was often to express concern that they'd been overlooked, including in this story from TVNZ's Breakfast, where Kapiti grandmother Urutakai Cooper told Jenny May Coffin rising rents meant her children were losing hope they'd ever be able to buy a house. So how has it been for you and your husband to see your daughter, your son-in-law and your mokopuna in this situation? Oh, yeah, it's, it's, heart, it's heartbreaking because, like I said, they're, they're wonderful parents. I mean, I've got five children and all of them are wonderful parents. And um, they do really well for their, for their own children and um, I just want them to have a future. Some social media users said the bias towards investor voices showed newsrooms had essentially been bought off by a real estate industry which pays top dollar for glossy inserts in sections like The Herald's One Roof or Stuff's Homed. The reality is likely a bit more nuanced, but it's possible those real estate connections inform which commentators reporters have on speed dial. Moneyed and powerful voices are also just easier for journalists to get a hold of in general. 
property investors have the cash to fund full-time advocates like King and Colwick. Economists are notoriously easy to find and reliable with a quote. Renters don't have the same resources or representation, and in this case, even those who often speak for those with lower incomes, such as the Salvation Army or Mangadi Budgeting Services Trust Darrell Evans, weren't featured. Those inbuilt advantages for investors can lead to the media presenting a distorted impression of what New Zealanders actually think. To get a fuller picture that doesn't just elevate the loudest, most well-resourced voices in the room, it's worth taking the time to dig a little deeper and not default to the usual suspects. Hayden Donnell there, looking back at how property owners' angst was amplified in the media after the government's big announcement last Tuesday, but the voices of the housing have-nots were harder to hear. When news seeped out on social media last month that one of the country's longest-serving and most respected reporters was leaving the New Zealand Herald and journalism, it triggered a stream of tributes and expressions of sorrow. We won't see his like again was the common theme of those reacting to news of the retirement of Simon Collins, who finished up at the Herald this week. Now, many said he was an inspiration they hoped to emulate, but some said Simon set the bar so high that that wasn't a realistic aspiration. And not only was Simon Collins a dedicated journalist, he was also dedicated to upholding the quality of journalism, a commitment that sometimes brought him into conflict with his own employers. And in fact, in the 1990s, he even helped set up and run a paper where reporters were the bosses. As the Herald said Heidi Ra to him this week, and he left journalism after 42 years as a professional reporter, I spoke to Simon about all that and much more about changes in the media that he's witnessed. And I actually discovered in doing that he'd been reporting long before he turned pro, publishing his first newspaper at the age of nine. So that started off as one copy of a newspaper that I did for my parents, and, and it grew from there during my school time copied on a school Gestetner, uh, which the, the, initially the primary school and then the secondary school were happy to help me do. <laughs> uh, and by the end of it, it was up to a circulation of about 50 that was distributed to people on the school bus and things like that. So it was <laughs> a newspaper about uh, what was going on in, in the little rural place where I grew up, uh, in the Partia district in South Taranaki. And was it lifting the lid on local and school controversies? Yes, that was the idea of it. <laughs> <laughs> and were you hitting your deadlines at the age of nine? Uh, <laughs> Must have been. (laughs) (laughs) And there was a lot more in that chat with the extraordinary Simon Collins, who retired this week from the New Zealand Herald, and you can hear it in full here on Media Watch next weekend. One Friday last month, the Minister for Broadcasting and Media, Chris Farfoy, popped into the headquarters of the Otago Daily Times in Dunedin to unveil his government's latest move to sustain local news and journalism in tight times for the local news media. $55 million over the next three years in a special fund to which media companies big and small, local and national, could all apply to bankroll their work and their projects even the Otago Daily Times. And this is the biggest single public investment in journalism for decades and the first time public funding has ever become available for some media in New Zealand. And as we heard more recently on Media Watch, opposition political parties are pretty worried about the media being reluctant to bite the hand that's feeding them in future. Opposition MP Melissa Lee was asking questions like this. So the question was, if a minister or the prime minister threatened to actually pull your public interest journalism funding, would you run the story, is the question. 
Now, when grilled about this at a parliamentary committee, Chris Farfoy said, don't worry, all the money will be dispensed at arm's length from politicians by the government's broadcasting funding agency. I am confident that any decisions that made uh, around any of the funding support that we have, um, that we have uh, announced recently uh, is completely and utterly uh, clear of any ministerial involvement and uh, quite rightly is undertaken by New Zealand on air. But it turns out that that public interest journalism fund might be a bigger investment than the media reports have suggested so far. After the announcement, the Cabinet paper outlining the approval for the spending, Investing in Sustainable Journalism, was released by the Ministry for Culture and Heritage after the Minister's big reveal. It says that $10 million will be spent this year, $20 million in the final year, 2023, but in 2022 it says $45 million is listed, making a total of $75 million all up. And in the current circumstances, another $20 million for more journalism is a very big deal. The Cabinet paper says that on the 6th of July 2020, Cabinet agreed to provide $77 million over three years for what it calls broadcasting initiatives. And the paper in the name of the Minister also says this. I will seek agreement to the use of the remaining $20 million in the contingency before the end of the 2020-2021 financial year. So does that mean there will be a bonanza in 2022 for journalism or not? Well, this week the Minister's office confirmed to MediaWatch that, as reported last month, $55 million over three years will pay for public interest journalism via New Zealand On Air. But the Minister has a further $20 million contingency, which he may seek approval to draw down as he sees fit. Some of that contingency could go to the Public Interest Journalism Fund, if the Minister deemed it necessary, or the contingency could be used for other broadcasting and media priority initiatives, the statement said. So the $77 million referred to in the Cabinet paper includes the $55 million for the Public Interest Journalism Fund that's been confirmed and that extra $20 million contingency yet to be considered by the Minister. Now, the knowledge that there's another $20 million on the table for the Minister to call upon in 2022 probably means the media lobbying of the Minister won't let up between now and then. The first $10 million will be available this year, the Minister said, and the fund could be taking applications as soon as next month. But New Zealand On Air is relatively new to funding journalism and not with the sort of sums it will now have at its disposal. So this week I asked New Zealand On Air's Head of Funding Amy Mills, is New Zealand On Air ready for the job? Yes, you're right, but actually we do have quite significant experience in terms of funding journalism and news and current affairs. We've gone through initial engagement with the sector to kind of gauge needs and understand where the pressure points are and how we do our normal funding and what does that look like. So what does that mean, engagement with the sector? So 24 interviews that were undertaken by Hal Crawford post the Minister's announcement, so in sort of February, hour-long interviews going into um, questions about uh, defining at-risk public journalism, you know, we, we do fund news and journalism content currently, but there's a lot that we don't know about that sector that we need to understand. And so that's what those conversations were about. It was about understanding what the needs are out there. You're also recruiting for a head of journalism and uh, secondarily to that, uh, an advisor. So two, two new people specifically 
Is that to administer this fund? It is. So we're currently in market for the head of journalism role, and we've actually allowed ourselves some flexibility that if we need um, a couple more bodies on the ground that might look like a funding advisor but might actually be a bit more um, steeped in the experience of the journalism sector and might need to be doing something slightly different to our regular funding advisors that work into the New Zealand Media Fund, which is our sort of baseline funding model. We're trying to land that head of journalism role first and foremost, and if timings can allow, we'd look for them to help drive some of that further recruitment to ensure they're getting the right people working into them to, d- to deliver the fund. So these new people you're hiring with specific journalism experience, are they the ones who are going to be making the decisions? They could be pretty powerful people in determining whether some $55 million or more, as it may be, over three years goes. We're still working through those processes. And what I would say is that in terms of how we do things as per our business-as-usual approach, we will oftentimes ensure that if we've got an initiative that might be targeted towards, say, children's content or we've recently done one around Pan-Asian content, we'll ensure that we have representation not external assessors that can feed into that so that you've got practitioners able to have eyes across projects without conflicts of interest, of course, alongside internal staff. So I would imagine we'd be looking at a similar type process in terms of this fund. So it won't just be this head of journalism or their advisor from the industry, presumably, that's going to be re- that will be greenlighting the money for the propositions? No, and that's not how we would normally do things. You always have multiple sets of eyes across applications so that there's a sort of rigour behind that. So we will be trying to emulate everything we're currently doing within the same framework for this fund because we're, it's, it's tried and tested methods. So, Okay. And finally, um, the Cabinet paper that was released just after the announcement by the Minister of this Public Interest Journalism Fund, uh, in it he said he, he expected uh, that applications could be coming in as soon as April, which is only next month. Mm-hmm. And he even said uh, at one point the, um, the first bits of content he would hope to see by the end of May. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really close. Is that going to happen? So I think the end of May deadline um, isn't a feasible one and we're looking to have the fund open at the very end of April um, and we are aware that there's $10 million that has to get out the door by the end of June. So again, the, the processes will flow from there in terms of how we run assessment and, and that at the moment for us is an eight-week assessment process and it may be less than that, it might be slightly tighter, but we're still going to be working towards ensuring that decisions are made before the end of the financial year. Yeah, actually, as, as head of funding, do you have a role in this? Do you have even like a power of veto? If you don't like a particular journalism idea, you could you could scratch it, even if your newly appointed head of journalism thought it was great? I certainly do not have a power of veto. <laughs> no, and, and I will be involved, absolutely, but has to be driven by that, that team. But of course, in terms of recruitment processes, they might be on later than, say, the first round's open. So I will be involved in that process, but as will others, yeah. That was Amy Mills, New Zealand On Air's head of funding. Before we go this weekend, earlier this month on Midweek Media Watch, our weekly catch-up with Karen Hay on The Lately Show on RNZ National, Hayden Donnell took a look at an Australian TV report that made political waves here recently. It was promoted by Australia's Nine News like this. Only Nine News is on board this secret one-way flight, booting Kiwi criminals back to New Zealand. And Channel 9's reporter Jordan Fabris was right up in the faces of the 501ers who were being herded onto what he called a Con Air repatriation flight as they were marched across and onto the plane. How does it feel to be kicked out of Australia? And there was plenty more where that came from as Jordan Fabris confronted several other deportees who were all handcuffed and flanked by Border Force officers. 
A fully unrestrained Australian Border Force chief then assured Jordan Fabris that all this was about protecting Australia's communities. And then the Immigration Minister Peter Dutton told Jordan Fabris this. It's taking the trash out, then we can make Australia a safer place. After three hours in the air, Conair touches down at Auckland International Airport. The unwanted passengers, no longer Australia's problem. Now, Peter Dutton calling New Zealand citizens trash caused a diplomatic mini-row here. He later apologised for his choice of words, but what about the way that that report was actually made? Jordan Fabris made it sound like he was revealing a top-secret operation. No markings, just an Australian flag on the tail. And, but for a small handful of people, no one knows about the top-secret charter, or more importantly, where it's going. But it was pretty obvious there that Jordan Fabris had full Border Force permission to stroll around the runway and make just the sort of report that would have pleased the Minister and the Border Force. On Midweek Media Watch, Hayden was disappointed that the lack of ethics didn't seem to have raised any eyebrows across the ditch. The fact that it didn't receive much commentary sort of seems to suggest to me that this kind of police and government uh, well, authorities, border force and government propaganda is so common that it almost doesn't cause a stir over there. But this week there was some belated examination of that reprehensible report. Paul Barry, the host of ABC's TV show Media Watch, called it out on his own midweek update, Media Bites. The story was a PR exercise for Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton, who told Nine... It's taking the trash out, then we can make Australia a safer place. Which, as we heard, Nine dutifully parroted in its introduction. Taking out the trash. Trash is the word. No arguments here, though they didn't ask who was responsible. But thankfully, another ABC journalist did. Asia-Pacific foreign affairs reporter Stephen Zedzic this week reported that Border Force officials have conceded they made an error when they allowed Channel 9 to interview the deportees. He said that Australian Border Force Commissioner Michael Outram had told a hearing in Canberra that a fairly inexperienced junior media officer was responsible for the incident. We will be reminding them that this is not how we want to do business and we don't want that to occur again, the hearing in Canberra heard. Though that's funny because the Border Force Chief and Peter Dutton both seemed pretty happy with the way Channel 9 and Jordan Fabris covered their business in that crass, con-air so-called scoop. And Media Watch cannot confirm reports coming from Canberra that the same day a Border Force media officer sustained light injuries to the hand after being struck by an extremely wet bus ticket. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but the Media Watch team will be back with more at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next Sunday, here on RNZ National.